stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 24, verses 13 through 16. We'll read these verses responsibly. And so I'll read the, even, or the odd-numbered verses, and we'll read the even-numbered verses together. Verse 13 says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. Together, verse 14, And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And so the story here is that two of the disciples of Jesus, two lesser known disciples of Jesus, are walking out of Jerusalem, heading uh, to their town on the uh, headed to their home on the outskirts of town, and they're confused. They've got a lot going on, and Jesus has died, and they're um, not really sure what to make of the reports that he's risen from the dead. And uh, then all of a sudden, this stranger joins them. On their path, the Bible tells us that their eyes were holden. They were not able to understand who it was that was with them. To them, the man joining them was a stranger, but in all reality, that man was Jesus. They took a journey with Jesus, not knowing who it was. And I would propose this morning to all of you here that you are also on a journey with Jesus. Some of you maybe have figured that out. Others of you have yet to identify the man on the journey with you. Your life's journey is Jesus. And so the title of the sermon this morning is this, Your Journey with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we open up the Bible and break open the words of life and partake of the truths that are here. Lord, help us all to be able to understand. Help us all to be able to give our attention, our full attention. In a day and age where attention spans run short, help us, Lord, to be able to focus in on these valuable and vital truths for us. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who's yet to discover Jesus on their journey, that today would be that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, have you ever been on a long road trip? I am at a place in time in my life where if I need to travel more than a couple of hundred miles away, I just bite the bullet and, and pay for the plane ticket and fly there. But I haven't always been in a financial spot where I could do that. When I was much younger, if I had to drive any distance uh, or I had to get any distance, I would drive and take a long road trip. Other people maybe are afraid, afraid to fly and so were unable to fly, so they would uh, drive. How many of you here have ever gone on a lengthy, multi-hour road trip? Would you hold up your hand for me there? Uh, when I was at a Bible college, I went to Bible college in northwest Indiana. My parents lived in Baltimore, and so it's 739 miles from my front door to the college. You say, how do you remember that it was 739 miles? I made that drive dozens and dozens of times and uh, that's a lot of driving, and I won't tell you how fast I got there, but typically it was a 13- or 14-hour drive. It wasn't always. Sometimes it was shorter, but 13-, 14-hour drive, and, um, uh, you know, a long road trip. You know what makes a long road trip more enjoyable? When you go with someone that is a good conversationalist that you like. And, uh, boy, if you're with a good conversationalist, a long road trip can feel much shorter. I've made that trip many times. Once I, I drove back from college uh, to uh, my home church for a wedding. A, a high school friend of mine was getting married. And so I drove there and drove back two days later. And I fell asleep behind the wheel on the way home. And I didn't, I didn't get into an accident. When I fell asleep, there was a car in front of me. When I woke up, the car was next to me and had switched lanes. Otherwise, I would have run into the back of them. And I was making that trip foolishly by myself on very little sleep. Another time I was on that trip and I happened to have my brother with me. My brother and I are very close to each other. We're then, are still now. And uh, we were going up Interstate 76 and the GPS uh, alerted us of some big accident and so rerouted us through Pennsylvania down some backcountry roads over to Interstate 70. And there we were for several hours going down two-lane highways. And we ended up stuck behind a motorcyclist who was uh, driving at a pretty good clip, but we were probably following four or five car lengths 
behind this motorcyclist, and I would say we were uh, trailing, tailing him for, I'd say, a good hour and a half, and then all of a sudden, you ever just daze out while you're driving? You know, you're making all the turns, but you sort of zone out a little bit, you, you, the monotony of the ride. All of a sudden, my brother yells at the top of his lungs, he's coming to a stop, and I slammed on my brakes, and I, I came to a stop about six inches behind him. He was turning left off that country road and had to wait on a car. Had my brother not been with me, my whole life would have gone a different direction. I probably wouldn't be here today. I may have been put in jail for uh, uh, negligent driving or manslaughter or uh, of some sort of behavior of that sort. A good company oftentimes can keep you from ruining your life, especially on a road trip. Well, here you have these two men. They're disciples of Jesus. Not part of the eleven, but maybe a little bit further out uh, as far as the inner circle, outer circle. Uh, more of the outer circle disciples of, of Jesus. And they uh, were in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. And here it is, Sunday afternoon, the day Jesus rose from the dead. And they're heading out of town to Emmaus. And lo and behold, Jesus himself comes along and takes the journey with them, and they have no idea who it is. Who it is. They were oblivious. Oblivious to the fact that Jesus had accompanied them along their journey. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you know the facts. You know the facts about Jesus in your head. Uh, you know that He was born and laid in a manger. You, you know that He claimed to be God in the flesh. You, you have heard the story of how He died on a cruel cross. You understand the details of the resurrection story, but I would ask you, have you made your relationship with Jesus personal? Personal. You see, I believe part of the reason why these men could not see Jesus is because they had a preconceived idea of who they wanted Jesus to be. And when that didn't pan out, when he died, they became disappointed by that and they were blinded by their own sadness because Jesus did not match up to who he wanted them to be. Luke 24 tells us that the resurrection Jesus came alongside and walked with them on their journey out of town. Scripture tells us that he hid his identity from them and they didn't know who he was. They viewed this man as a stranger, but all along it was the Lord Jesus. And what did he do? He explained to them from the Old Testament how that the Old Testament foreshadowed the life, the death, and the resurrection of, of, uh, of Jesus. And he went on uh, with them to their homes. He ate a meal with them. And as he broke bread, their eyes were opened. The cloak was removed and they realized who Jesus was. And as soon as they realized it was Jesus, uh, uh, the Bible says he vanished out of their sight. And then it goes on to say their heart burned within them because he, uh, they knew that it, uh, something was different about this guy as he taught them the Scripture. Now, our theme this Easter Sunday is the word risen. Risen. We're looking how Jesus arose from the dead. Can I tell you that sin... Uh, what it does to all of us, sin causes us all spiritual death. And my goal this morning for all of you here who've yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone to be your Savior is that you would do that so you could be risen anew in Christ. You could have a new life in Christ. And that today it would go from just being a day on the calendar, a holiday, a, a cultural occurrence to being something that's far more personal to you. The story of Jesus' his death and his resurrection can go from being a holiday you celebrate once a year with brunch and family and maybe Easter egg hunts for the kids. It can go from being what the culture dictates to you uh, to being uh, something personal. The day that Jesus uh, saves you from your sin. A lot of the singing this morning that we've heard is the word saved has been used over and over and over again. What does that mean to be saved? We're going to explore that word today. And we're going to see how these two men were saved from their own ignorance and realized that Jesus was accompanying them on their journey. Now listen up this morning. All of, you, all of us here in the room today, all of us have our own life's 
story. All of us got here from some different place. And uh, some of us have had an easier time getting here than others. Others of you have had a difficult path uh, uh, in life. And you've arrived somehow, some way in this church this morning. Maybe you're watching us online and somehow or another you've arrived on uh, to uh, this channel and you're watching the service through the means which you're doing so today. But can I tell you that whatever your journey has been... Jesus has been there with you, and he wants you to take the proverbial mask off and to see that Jesus wants more than just to be a stranger. He wants you to enjoy the journey with him. So let's talk about how that happens today. Let's jump into Luke chapter 24. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to use it. If you don't have a Bible, we have placed Bibles in the uh, pews there in front of you, there in the uh, rack down uh, by your knees. You look, there's some Bibles scattered around, and so I encourage you to get a Bible and follow along this morning. Let's look at four thoughts as we consider this title, Your Journey with Jesus. Thought number one, and if you have a bulletin, the outline's on the back. I encourage you to fill that out. Notice Christ's crucifixion. Christ's crucifixion. Look down at Luke chapter 24 and verse number 17 with me. Luke 24, verse number 17. The Bible says, And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? Now, I want to make sure you can picture this in your mind's eye. These two men are leaving Jerusalem. They're walking to the outskirts of town. And all of a sudden, this stranger joins them on their journey and walks up to them and says, Hey, guys. Can I walk along with you? Well, sure, you can. And to them, it's a stranger, but in all reality, it was Jesus. And uh, Jesus says to these two men, he says, hey, what's going on? Why are you so sad? What's got you so down? All right. And so you're picturing this now. Please understand, this event of Jesus' death in Jerusalem shook the whole city. Uh, This was a big deal, and it was the talk of the town. If there had been a newspaper in Jerusalem, it would have been front page headlines. It would have led off the news hour. It would have been the talking point for all of the news, not only in Jerusalem, but around the world. And so for this man to not know why they were sad seemed odd. Look at verse 18. The Bible says, And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto them, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? And hast not known the things which are come to pass in these days? And he said unto them, What things? What things? What are you talking about? What's going on? And they said unto him, um, uh, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, because of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. Crucified him. There was great sorrow that had filled Jerusalem. Those who had held great political power within Israel had risen up just three days prior and had put Jesus to death. They had killed him. And my friends, it wasn't some soft death. That death was brutal. That death was brutal. They hadn't just killed Jesus. They had utterly humiliated him. They had killed him With prejudice. Now, in a court of law, you'll see different types of charges brought against someone who takes someone else's life. Maybe you've heard of manslaughter. Manslaughter is the accidental, negligent death of another. Uh, Maybe you've heard of cold-blooded murder. The idea is that someone's blood is cold and they're not angry. It's not a hot, passionate crime. This is a detached, calculated Killing. I'll hear of someone who uh, just kills for the sake of killing complete strangers that they don't know. That's a cold-blooded uh, murder. Maybe you've heard of a hot-blooded murder. That's an emotional, intended, passionate death. This is when a husband uh, who uh, uh, lets animus build up in his heart toward his wife and he'll kill his wife. And uh, when the investigators come in and they do the forensics, there's this uh, there's this obvious passion that that murder was committed with or a wife, a husband or some uh, relationship of a, a murder that happens. And make no mistake about it, the murdering of Jesus was not manslaughter. 
The murdering of Jesus was not a cold-blooded, calculated death. This was a hot-blooded killing. This was a passionate killing. Those of great power in the, in the nation of Israel who uh, knew much, uh, they hated Jesus. They could not stand Jesus. And so they killed him with great prejudice. And boy, they made it, they made it ugly. They, they killed him in every way Possible. They stripped him naked. And the Bible tells us he was beaten so bad you could not tell if he was a human or a worm. And uh, the Bible says he was rejected. He, his appearance was not one to be desired to be looked upon. In fact, people saw Jesus on the cross. They were so grotesque by what they saw, they looked away. Now, the greatest thing about the God of the Bible is that you can't outsmart him. You can't outsmart him. Now, these religious leaders with great jealousy murdered Jesus, but can I tell you that this just fulfilled God's plan all along. You say, well, how is it that God would plan to have Jesus killed? I heard someone describe the providence or a man, or rather the providence of God or the sovereignty of God up against the free will of man. And this is the idea that God is ultimately in charge, but man has a free will to make their own choices. So how do you reconcile the two thoughts? And boy, that's one that's got a lot of theologians talking for, debating for many years. I heard someone sort of reconcile that thought this way. He said that if you and I were to sit down across from a grandmaster who was a chess player and and, uh, you know what? You get to move your pieces around the board, but the outcome of the, of the chess match is decided well before it even starts. And the length of that chess match is determined not by the, the amateur, me or you. It's deter- determined by the grandmaster. He can finish that game off as quickly as he'd like, or, or he can prolong it as long as he wants. And my friend, they were moving the chess pieces around the board and killing Jesus, but you can't outsmart the grandmaster of them all. A God, the sovereign God in heaven, he ultimately is the one who decides the fate of man and of his son. And so letter A, we see his death was deliberate. His death was deliberate. There was nothing um, spontaneous about this. The death of Jesus was always in the plan of God all the way from the beginning. Look back at Luke chapter 24 and look at verse number 1. Luke 24, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came into the sepulcher bringing the spices which, were, uh, which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. These are angels, verse 5. And as they were afraid and bowed down their face to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. Look at verse 6. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, what did Jesus speak? Verse 7, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. Jesus foretold his own death well before it happened. In fact, very early on in Jesus' ministry, he told his disciples, I will be killed. I will be killed. You know, it wasn't just Jesus that foretold his own death. The Old Testament foretold of the death of the coming Messiah going back hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 53, we find, uh, and by the way, Isaiah was written several hundred years before Jesus would be born, several hundred years before the act of crucifixion had been invented as a form of capital punishment. That We find Isaiah 53 describing in great detail how the Messiah would be killed and be killed by way of crucifixion. While that word is not used, the concept of crucifixion is well explained. And if you go back to Daniel chapter number 9, Daniel 9 not only predicted the death of the Messiah, but told us down to the very year that it would happen, that the Messiah would be cut off. He would be killed. Now, understand that the Pharisees hated Jesus and they brought him to have him killed out of hot-blooded murder. But for Jesus... This was always part of the plan. His death was deliberate. His death was deliberate. I imagine that when they would nail a man to a cross the way the Romans did with the act of crucifixion, that they would have several soldiers there. 
and they lay that cross on the ground and they take that man who they were going to nail, a normal man they were going to nail to that cross. And I imagine they had several soldiers that would force the arm down of the man and a couple of soldiers who would hold that railroad-sized spike and pound that in. How many of you here have ever tried to pick up a 35-pound toddler who does not want to be picked up and realize how difficult and challenging that can be. Now imagine you have a full-grown man who does not want to be nailed to a cross. How many soldiers it would take to hold him down. I imagine the soldiers were in place and ready to hold down the arms of Jesus, but then he just willingly laid it out. And those soldiers stood there. You see, the Bible tells us that he laid down his life voluntarily. He was killed but he allowed it to happen. And then the other arm stretched out. And then he put his feet in position as they pounded those nails into his hands and his feet. His death was deliberate. Let her be noticed. His resurrection was destined. His resurrection was destined. Look back at verse number 7. And again, the disciple, or rather the angels here, are telling these women who've come to perfume the body of Jesus in the grave, uh, they're reminding them of the words of Jesus. Verse 7, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. Look here. And the third day rise again. Verse 8, And they, the women at the tomb, remembered His words. They remembered Jesus' words. Now listen. Over and over and over and over again, while Jesus walked the earth, he would look his disciples in the eye and say, Now listen, folks, listen up. I'm going to be killed, and three days later, I'm going to raise again. And you know what happened? It went in one, it went in one ear and out the other. How many of you parents in here know what it means to say something and have it go in one ear and out the other? Okay? You're like, What? You told me that? I didn't know you told me to do my homework. I didn't know you told me to clean my room. What? You, you wanted me to clean up after the dog? I, I don't. I, I didn't hear you, but you tell them you're going to get ice cream tomorrow, and boy, they remember that, don't they? They remind you and remind you. You know, the disciples had been told over and over and over and over again, by the Lord, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to raise from the dead. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to raise from the dead. But because it wasn't the narrative that they wanted to hear, it went in one ear and out the other. And then when the angels reminded these women at the tomb, they said, ah. Oh, Now I remember him talking about this. You see, this was all part of the plan of God. You understand that when Jesus died, he took away our sin. And when he rose from the dead, he beat our sin and purchased the gift of eternal life that he offers to each one here freely today. More about that in a minute. Number one, we see Christ's Resurrection. Number two, notice the disciples' confusion. The disciples' confusion. Now, you have been told from a young age that Jesus died, right? He was born and laid in a manger, right? And that usually gifts come along with that idea, right? Okay, that's Christmas. And that you, you've been told since you were little that he, that he died and that three days later he rose from the dead. And so when you tell a child something like this at a young age and you keep reminding of them of this all the way into their adult years, we just all say, well, yes, I, I, I understand that. I've always seemed to have understood that. Since I was young, I've understood it. Since before I can remember, I uh, have understood that. But imagine that you live in this time where no one has ever stood up from the dead. And imagine that you're with these, you're one of these followers of Jesus and you have your own idea of who you want Jesus to be. And then all of a sudden, he's killed. And your expectations are shattered. And then someone comes along and says, He rose from the dead. The skeptic in you and the skeptic in me would probably say, Yeah, right. That's just wishful thinking. Look with me at verse number 21. Luke 24, verse 21. It says, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. They got the redeemed part right, but they are getting um, uh, the uh, who is to be redeemed and how they're to be redeemed right. They got that wrong. Uh, the verse goes on to say, and besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished 
which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not the body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it, even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Now many people can relate with these two gentlemen. They were confused on exactly who Jesus was. Verse number 21, back up in verse 21 where we began, it it says this, But we trusted that it it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Now understand the political climate of that day. Uh, The nation of Israel were slaves, were under the thumb, the political thumb of the Roman Empire. And the Israeli nation wanted to be liberated. They wanted freedom from that empire. So when Jesus came along, they thought, man, this is it. This is the guy. He's going to come along and lead us out from underneath political oppression. He's going to give us freedom from political Roman oppression. But that wasn't why Jesus came the first time. Jesus came to not offer political revolution, but to offer spiritual redemption. Spiritual redemption. And you know what? He wasn't just offering that for Israel. He was offering that for all of humanity. All of humanity. And that meant he was going to have to die. Because because they had the wrong idea of who Jesus was supposed to be. Now listen up here. Because they had the wrong idea of who Jesus was supposed to be, they doubted Jesus outright. Can I tell you that people today make that same mistake? People have this idea that Jesus is supposed to do this, this, and this. And when God does not meet our expectations, then we just shrug our shoulders and walk away and say, well, then I just don't believe in him at all. The world is filled with atheists and agnostics, people who used to believe in God but turned away. And sometimes people get that way because they're trained that way educationally. But can I tell you, a lot of people become that way because God let them down at some point in their life. God wasn't who they expected him to be. That was the case for these guys. Jesus was supposed to offer political revolution. And when he didn't, it just left them in a state of confusion. Many people have an expectation on God. When that doesn't work out, they're just left confused. Now, can you picture these guys walking down the street They don't know to make heads or tails in the news. Uh, uh, They're following Jesus and hoping for this political revolution, and they see him healing people and doing miracles, and all of a sudden he's arrested, and then he's murdered up on that cross, he's killed up on that cross, and, and, and they're just crushed. And then women come running into their presence, saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And they're thinking, no, that can't be. This is just wishful thinking. And they're walking out of town, and they're trying to make... Heads and tails of a very confusing situation. We see men who were very, very, very confused. Number one, we see Christ's crucifixion. Number two, the disciples' confusion. Number three, notice Christ's clarification. Christ's clarification. So here we have these two guys dismayed because their master has been killed. And they're sad by that. And Jesus is standing right next to them, and they don't even know it. <laughs> you know, I, uh, if you ever wonder if, if, if God has a sense of humor, this might be evidence that God has a sense of humor. He, he cloaks himself in a way where he's there, but they don't know he's there. And he's going on a journey with them, and they're sad that Jesus is dead while Jesus is walking with them. And so Jesus plays the role of a stranger well. Look at verse 25, and he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe, there's the key word believe, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Now they have no idea that they were journeying with Jesus. The Lord had blinded their eyes and their understanding to exactly who he was. So they thought this man to be a complete stranger. Verse 27 says, he began with Moses. He began with Moses and worked his way through the Old Testament and showed them the course of Jesus' life was laid out for him well before Jesus would ever be born. 
as we go through the Old Testament, we can see the story of Christ all throughout. What is the Old Testament? It's a whole bunch of stories with arrows pointing to the life of the Messiah, the Christ, who would end up being Jesus, uh, born on earth, God wrapped in flesh, robed in flesh, and brought to earth. The Old Testament are the slides, and the New Testament is the slide projector. How many of you are old enough to remember that machine right there? Old enough to remember that machine, okay? Uh, When I was a boy growing up in church, we would have missionaries come and uh, present their work right where they were serving the Lord in other countries. Uh, Remember one church I was in, uh, we had a missionary come and he was going to be a missionary to New York City. And he's trying to sell that right. And I remember he brought this, this machine right here and he had the fanciest slideshow I had ever seen. I remember being like a six year old boy sitting there going, wow, look at that technology. That is impressive. That is impressive. Now, um, the way this machine works, just as a refresher, and for the kids in the room, right, uh, you may not remember, the way this works is those um, little slides on the right, uh, you shine light through that, and you get a really uh, clear picture of uh, what you would have. How many of you remember the old cameras that you would drop off at Walgreens or Walmart and come back either, you had to pay extra for the 24-hour service, remember that? Or you could wait a week and pick them up later. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And uh, I remember those really well. And, um, uh, you know, today you take a picture and you can look at it instantly. And uh, I, I like that, but I don't like that because that means my wife takes like 30 pictures of the same thing. Right? Uh, when I back my wife's phone up to my computer, it just about breaks my computer because there's so many pictures on there. I think, how are there so many pictures on this phone? Uh, but, um, you know, back in the old days with those old cameras, you could open up the back and you could look at the film and you could look up through the film up against the light and you'd get some idea of what was there. Now, that's the Old Testament. The, Jesus is found all throughout the Old Testament, but it's foreshadowed. It's, it's the slides and the New Testament comes and Jesus is the light that shines through those slides and makes it crystal clear. And so here Jesus is accompanying these men and he goes back to the Old Testament and he takes the stories of the Old Testament that they were familiar with and he shows them how that all of these stories was about the coming Jesus who would live and die and raise from the dead. Now the Bible says he started with Moses, but I'm going to start with one here for you a little prior to Moses. If you have your Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5. Now here we have the story of Noah and the ark. And uh, the, God had, had, had created the earth about 2,000 years prior. And in 2,000 years, man had gone from loving God to a, a becoming very secular and worshiping themselves and ignoring God. In fact, the whole earth, every human on earth, had turned their back on God except one man named Noah and his family. Look, look at verse number 5, and we get the state of the world. The Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thought, thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. So God's in heaven. He's looking down at the happenings on earth, and he sees that the, even the thoughts in man's heart are only wicked continually. And the Bible says he regrets that he even made man To begin with, look at verse 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. God is sitting in heaven with, with buyer's remorse, creator's remorse. Sorry that he ever made man. Look at verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And by the way, that word grace there in Genesis 6, 8 is the first time you find the word grace in the Bible. And that's a, uh, that, that's a fascinating thing here. We see that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God's reached a point where he's so upset at the actions of humanity that he's ready to just wipe them out and be done with it. And he looks down on planet Earth and he sees of all the people that are alive, one man named Noah, and he says, but that guy fears me. That guy loves me. I can't destroy him. And so he comes to Noah and he says, Noah, I want you to build a gigantic boat. We call it an ark. 
and I want you to build it a very specific way, and I want you to invite people onto this boat. And so people lived much longer back then. Noah took the next 120 years, and he and his wife and his three sons and their wives, and they built, the eight of them, they built a gigantic boat in Noah's backyard. And I'm sure that a, a tourism venue popped up around the lunatic Noah and the boat he was building. Come see the giant boat that Noah's building all this ways from shore. And uh, what a nut job. He's a religious loony, I'm sure he was labeled. And Noah would do two things every day for 120 years. He would build the boat and he would preach to people and say, Get on the boat because the wrath of God is coming and those on the boat will be spared and those that aren't on the boat will die. And everyone laughed and scoffed and mocked Noah, but the day came where God sent the animals onto the boat and God put Noah and his family on the boat. And after seven days of sitting on that boat, the Bible says in Genesis 7 that the Lord, God, closed the door to the boat. And the people were outside mocking and making fun of. But then the heavens opened and the rain came. And then people went from mocking and making fun of Noah's boat to banging on the side of it and begging to get in. And those people who were godless were killed. Now, I want to ask a question this morning. Was God cruel to kill those people who had turned their back on Him? No. The invitation went forth and everyone had their opportunity to get on the boat. They chose not to get on the boat. Do you know that God is going to pour out His wrath on earth again? Next time it won't be with water, it will be with fire. And God is likewise providing a way out of His wrath. And it's a different piece of wood. It's not a boat, it's a cross. And just like those in the boat were spared from the wrath of God, those that put their faith in Christ will be spared from the wrath of God. Noah's boat was just a picture of the cross. The Bible says he began with Moses. So what's significant about Moses? Here Jesus is walking on this journey with these two men. Unbeknownst to them, it's Jesus. And it says he opened with Moses. Well, what happened with Moses? You may remember that the Israelites at one point were slaves to the Egyptians. And um, uh, the, they wanted out of slavery. They wanted their own independence. This is going back years and years and years prior to Jesus coming to earth. And so God sends Moses into uh, Egypt. Uh, how many of you have either seen the Charleston Heston movie about Moses or the Disney movie Prince of Egypt. How many of you have seen one of those two movies? Okay, so most of you in here would be familiar with this. Um, uh, some of you didn't raise your hand, but probably saw it. And so I think, didn't um, the older movie, didn't the guy who played Moses have like a deep southern accent? I believe that was the case. He had a deep southern accent. But regardless, you know the story, right? The plagues are brought on Egypt and uh, uh, Pharaoh expels the Israelites from Egypt and they follow Moses out and they're going to begin their own uh, independence and their own freedom. They have liberty. They have freedom. They're on their way to their promised land and they walk up to the Red Sea and where they stop at the Red Sea, they've got mountains over here. They've got rough terrain and mountains over here. They've got the Red Sea behind them and then Pharaoh changes his mind and here come the Egyptian army and so they're locked in they're trapped and then Moses does something spectacular he holds out his rod and the Red Sea parts now let me pause the story right there everybody listen in right here I want to make a solid point especially those who are first-time visitors and maybe skeptical to what I'm saying at this point there are a lot of people who accuse Christians of being narrow-minded. Narrow-minded. Okay? Is that a fair accusation? I don't believe it is. Now, I want you to imagine that these Israelites are standing there and the water, God has just parted the water. So there is one way out. I want you to imagine these folks look at Moses and up at God and say, you're only going to give us one way out? Boy, you sure are narrow-minded, Moses. I imagine someone else standing there, you know, they're getting all stretched, and they say, you know what, I'm a world-class swimmer. I don't need that. I'm going to swim across the Red Sea. I'll meet you guys on the other side. Many people think they can work their way to heaven or swim across their own sin. Many people think there's many ways to heaven. 
you know what? When you become desperate enough to understand that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that God bent over backwards to create a way to heaven for you, you won't call Him narrow-minded anymore. You see, just like there was one way out, and that was through the Red Sea, God looked down at humanity and saw us in our broken state and said, I need to create a way for them to get to heaven. But there's only one way, and that's by me sending my son to die on the cross in their place. There Jesus hung on the cross, a much uglier cross than the pretty one we have on our back wall, but there he hung. And Jesus would say prior to his death, he would say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father. No one gets into heaven but by me. Don't you don't you snub God and say, oh, how narrow-minded you are. He killed His own Son on the cross to provide a way to heaven for you. How arrogant is us, uh, it is for some of us to look at that and say, well, I don't want that way. I want my own way. There's one way to heaven, and it's Jesus. And just like they passed through the Red Sea to get away from the slavery of the Egyptians, you must pass through the blood of Jesus Christ to get away from the captivity of sin and the consequences of sin. Now, some people don't like to think about blood. Some folks are squeamish at the thought of blood. My wife gave birth to both of our children very cesare- via cesarean, and I saw a little bit of the process, and I didn't... You know, didn't get sick, but I definitely didn't enjoy seeing it, okay? Um, Blood, the blood of Jesus washes away the deepest sin stain. Now listen up this morning, listen up. There are two groups of people in the room here that falsely think uh, they're going to heaven. And the first group of people over here are the folks that say, I'm good enough. I'm a good person. And then there's a group of people that would say, I know I'm not a good person. I've blown it so bad, there's no way God could ever forgive me. Now, I'll talk about the crowd that says I'm good enough here in a minute. But let me talk, about, uh, talk to you folks over here that say, you know what? I've done so many things, there's no way God could forgive me. There is no limit to the love of God. And there is no limiting the power of God. The blood of Jesus Christ can wash away the deepest sin. That's how much He loves you. It's a question of will you come to Him? Will you humbly come to Him? Christ's clarification, He began with Moses. Some of you may remember the story of Jonah. Jonah was swallowed by a whale, a prophet of God swallowed by a whale because of his disobedience and in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And then the whale vomited him up. And Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Now, once these disciples, once these men on the road to Emmaus got their preconceived ideas out of the way, once they looked at the death and resurrection of Jesus with a clear head, it all made sense. It all made sense. Let me give you one more thought this morning. Notice point number four, the disciples' confession. The disciples' confession. Look with me at Luke chapter 24 and look at verse number 28. So again, Jesus has gone through the Old Testament and the prophets. He's explained to them how all of these stories that they're familiar with were arrows pointing to Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, and the atoning salvation that He offers. Look at verse 28. The Bible says, And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and He made as though He would have gone further. But they constrained Him, saying, Abide with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. So are you picturing this? Are you picturing this? Here you have these two men, and Jesus has come up next to them on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and he's walked with them out of town. And uh, the two men get to where they're going in Emmaus, and they turn off the road to go into their homes, and Jesus just keeps on walking. Now, they turn to Jesus and they say, Hey, not knowing it's Jesus, they turn to him and say, Hey, you know what? It's starting to get dark out, and you're probably hungry. Why don't you come sp- uh, have dinner with us and spend the night with us? And so Jesus accepts the invitation and he goes in to their home. And it was there in the home that they would understand who he was. Letter A, notice their understanding. Their understanding. Look at verse number 30. The Bible says, And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were open and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, 
Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? I wonder if these two men would have been present when Jesus took five loaves and two fishes and fed the multitudes. I wonder if they watched him break bread there and maybe there was that remembrance. Uh, uh, Mannerisms are an interesting thing. We all have mannerisms and people that know us well can tell us what our mannerisms are. Sometimes I'll see my son or my daughter do something and it will remind me of me or my wife. And Sometimes I listen to Matthew and April argue and I think they sound just like me and Angela when we argue. You know, and um, I'll see somebody do something or say something and it will remind me of my dad. Or I'll do something and I'll think, I got that from my dad. And I wonder when he broke bread. Maybe the way he broke the bread, they thought, aha, that's Jesus. But whatever it was, the, the cloak was removed, the veil was removed in their mind, and they were able to know We've been walking with Jesus and we didn't even know it. The Bible says as soon as they realized it, he vanished out of their sight. Now, you need, please listen, you need to have that aha moment in your life where Jesus goes from being a stranger to being a a person in your life that you accept. Here you have the Son of God who's been walking along your life's journey with you, unbeknownst to you. I was talking to someone earlier this week and they were telling me that they got saved. They put their faith and trust in Christ as an adult. They said, but I'm able to go look back over my shoulder and able to look back at my life. And I'm able to see the hand of God at work in my life all along the way. My friend, Jesus has been there with you, the question is, have you realized it yet? Are you listening? Everybody up here. Everybody up here. Stay locked in. This is the most important thing I'm going to share with you today. And I'm not trying to use hyperbolic speech. I mean what I'm about to say. I'm well aware of the gravity of this next statement. What I'm about to share with you is the most important thing anyone could ever share with you. If you've ever been locked in to a public speaker, now is the time to lock in. There are four things I want you to understand about Jesus and your journey with Jesus this morning. The first thing I want you to understand is that you are a sinner. Yeah, I said it. You are a sinner. Let me talk to that crowd of people who think they're good enough to get into heaven for just a moment. Can we, can we get real this morning? Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says there is none righteous. None Righteous, no, not one. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Isaiah who was called up in a vision in the presence of God. He was a preacher. He was a prophet. Later on in that book, after spending time in the presence of God, do you know what he would write? Listen up now. Do you know what he'd write? He would write that my righteousnesses are like filthy rags in the sight of God. We walk around pretending that we're better than, but we all fall short of God's perfection. You know what? You very well may be more righteous than me. We all can find others in humanity to compare ourselves to and say, yeah, I'm better than him, I'm better than her. But can I tell you that when we get to heaven one day and you alone are giving an account of God to your life, he's not going to care how much better you were than some other person down the street, around the block, or on the other side of the tracks. He's going to care about how perfect you are in comparison with his son. And here Jesus is at perfect, never committed a single sin. And here all of us are down here in our wretchedness, in our vile transgressions against the law of God. My friend, we're all sinners, and that creates a problem. Now, I'm just going to speak plain to you this morning because I care about you, but the second thing I want you to understand this morning is that sin, sin's price is death in hell. If you have a Bible, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. This is the second to last chapter in the Bible. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Chapter 22 is the last chapter. Turn to chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Please, 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 if you have a Bible, please, please, please turn there with me and look at Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. Let me set the stage for you, okay? Uh, One day there's going to be a seven-year tribulation 
here on earth. And God is going to pour out His wrath on the earth during that seven-year tribulation. At the end of those seven years, uh, uh, Jesus is going to come to earth in flesh, and He's going to rule and reign this planet right here for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand-year reign, Satan is going to be loosed out of hell. He's going to stir up a rebellion against King Jesus, and there's going to be one more battle that will be squelched. That rebellion will be put out. And then after that rebellion... The Lord Jesus is going to sit on His throne in heaven and each human being is going to be brought before God and each one of us are going to be weighed up against the actions of our life. Verse 8 tells us what's going to happen to all of humanity one at a time. Look at verse 8. The Bible says there, But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters. Let's pause there for a minute. That's a pretty rough crowd of people. Murderers, whoremongers, abominable, idolaters. Now you may or may not fit into one of those categories, but look at the next one. Look at the next one. And all liars. Everybody look up here for a minute. How many murders do you need to commit to be a murderer? Speak to me. One. All right. How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? One. Can we get real this morning? How many of you would say, I fit somewhere under one of these categories in this verse this morning? Would you hold up your hand? If your hand's not up, you're lying right now. Right? Now let's see what happens to these people. Look back at the verse. It says, Shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. The second separation. You see, the death that we experience here on earth is the first death. There will be a second separation, a second death of the soul in hell. The truth is that because I've broken God's moral laws, I deserve to go to hell. It's a good day when you come to realization that the same is true for you. My friend, our sin separates us from God. Now, at this point in this understanding of yours, You ought to be at a place where you grasp the concept that nothing you do can change that. You can't work your way out of hell. There is no purgatory found in the Bible. It's not in there. It's a Catholic doctrine that was invented. It's not in the Bible. It's not. I've read this book cover to cover to cover many times. Purgatory is not in here. And you don't work your way out of hell. We're all condemned to hell. Are you listening this morning? Listen up. What is the answer? I'm glad to tell you there is an answer. Here's the third thing I want you to understand this morning. Believe, or rather, Jesus paid the price for your sin. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 3. Let me read it for you. Let me read it for you. Just listen intently here. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Behind me on this wall, there's a cross. This is here because this is a reminder of what Jesus went through. Let me ask a question to you this morning. If you could be good enough to get yourself into heaven, what in the world was Jesus doing dying on a cross? What was that about? If there was a way for me to get into heaven without help, boy, then Jesus' death was in vain. Here's the reality. God looked ahead in my life, and He saw my birth date, 
and he saw my death date. He saw all the sins in between. And my sins from my life were put into a pile and brought back to this cross. And Jesus was turned into my sin. And my sin killed Jesus on that cross, just like yours did. He died for our sins. That's why he died. There's some things I want you to understand this morning, and that is that Jesus loves you so much, he was willing to become your sin. One more, one more thought this morning. Notice this, believe in Jesus to be saved. Take your Bibles to John chapter 3 and verse 17. John 3, 17. Please, if you have a Bible or a Bible app or any form of a Bible, please turn over to these verses. John 3, 17 and 18. Here, a religious man named Nicodemus. He was religious but lost. He was religious and searching. He comes to Jesus and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus breaks it down for him. Look at verse number 17. The Bible says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, might be rescued. Verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, the dividing line is, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he died for you? Let me ask you this question this morning. Have you personally put your faith in Jesus to be your Savior? When I was a small child, I attended the Central Baptist Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I understood this message right here, that I was a sinner and I deserved hell, that Jesus died on the cross for me. I came down to the front at the end of the Sunday evening service, and I knelt at the altar. And uh, at, at, at that point, my father sat me on this side of the auditorium, right on the front pew. April 8th, 1988. 30-something years ago, I'm preaching and my mind doesn't work real well when it comes to math, but uh, some 30-something years ago, I sat on that front pew and I put my faith in Jesus. It sounded something like this. I called out to Jesus as I said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I deserve to go to hell when I die. My faith is in you and what you did on the cross. Your resurrection from the dead saved my soul. That day... I received something called a gift of eternal life. Now, I I want you to focus in on this now. If a gift is truly a gift, then you can't pay for it. Imagine with me, if you would, that uh, I came over here to Scott. Scott's my friend. And I came over to Scott and I said, Scott, I bought you a gift, man. I pay for it with my money, and I want to give it to you i got it wrapped up here. Uh, Scott, you can have this gift, but I'm going to need $20 from you. Would that be a gift? How many say that would not be a gift? That would not be a gift. What if I said to Scott, Scott, I got you a really nice gift. I mean, it's very valuable, very expensive, something that you really want. You come to church every Sunday morning for the next 52 weeks, it's yours. You know, that's not a gift either. Because I've put a stipulation on something he has to do to get it. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, as well as other places, that salvation is a gift of God. He doesn't want your good works. Hey, everybody listening up here, I'm not trying to be unkind to any group of people this morning, but I want to make sure I'm crystal clear on this. When you get to the gate of heaven, God is not going to check your denominational card to see whether or not he should let you in. He doesn't care if you're Presbyterian or Catholic or Baptist for that matter. He's going to ask you one question. What did you do with Jesus? There was a day where I personally made Jesus my Savior. Your mom can't do it for you. Your dad can't do it for you. Your husband or wife can't do it for you. You must make that choice to accept Jesus. You must make it personal. Your journey with Jesus can become real if you'll call on Him by faith and ask Him to be your Savior. Letter A, we see their understanding quickly. Letter B, their utterance, and I'm done. 
Luke 24, verse 33 and 34 says, And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. What did these men do when they realized it was Jesus, when they understood who he was? They immediately, their reflex was to go tell other people. To those of you here today that have put your faith and trust in Jesus, let's make sure we're busy telling others about it. I finish with this. Somehow, some way, you made it into our service this morning. Maybe you were invited by a loved one. Maybe you found us on your own. But Jesus has been accompanying you on your journey. The journey sure is far more enjoyable once you realize who He is. I want to ask you this morning, will you open up your heart? Will you believe in Jesus and confess Him as your Savior? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're almost finished this morning. But before we pray the final prayer and dismiss the service, boy, I sure do want to invite you to accept Jesus into your heart and life. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking on your heart's door this morning. Has your heart burned within you as I have explained these truths? Is there a little voice that's saying, listen to him? What he's telling you is true. Boy, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants in. He's waiting for you to open up your heart. And accept Him. If you're here this morning and you'd like to put your faith and trust in Jesus to be your Savior, let me just invite you to pray a very simple prayer like I prayed when I was a small child. Let me invite you to call on the name of Jesus right where you are. Just pray this prayer under your breath. Under your breath. Mean it from your heart. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. And I know that my sin is wrong. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place. My faith is in you. And in you alone. Save my soul. Take me to heaven when I die. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue with our heads bowed and eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer this morning, don't be ashamed of it. Be, be, be excited. We're excited with you that you did it. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 says that if you'll confess Jesus before men, that he'll profess, confess you before his Father in heaven. I sure want the Father and the Son to have a conversation about me.